Two preliminaries before we get to the word. First of all is a note of thank you for the invitation to preach the scriptures here, and especially to preach the scriptures in such an important uh, subject and conference, that of world missions. If we are not interested in the nations, then we just flat are not interested in the plan of God and the purpose of God from all of eternity to all of eternity, because this is what God is interested in. Secondly, I want to speak a word of encouragement to this congregation. I know uh, I've not seen many of you before, and most of you have not seen me before. The most encouraging words I can speak to you is the fact that Redeemer Baptist Church knows this church, and we pray for this church regularly. We pray for your pastors, not just Nick, but for all of your pastors. We pray for the good things. We pray for the struggles that you've had. We pray that God would build you up and use you mightily. And I hope that that speaks volumes to you because I thought, you know, I could come and say, I've got a million-dollar check for this church. Well, actually, I couldn't say that. I could say, I wish I had a million-dollar check for this church. But if I did, it would not be as significant as Redeemer Baptist Church regularly going before the throne of grace asking God's grace upon this church. And so please be encouraged with the fact that the folks at Redeemer Baptist Church know your names, they know the name of this church, and they labor for you in prayer before the kingdom. And that's probably the greatest encouragement that I could give you. As we turn to our subject tonight, let's bow and let's pray and let's ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, now we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to gather as your people as the chosen of the Lord, as the redeemed of the earth, as the holy ones, in the congregation of the righteous, with the purpose of worshiping your holy name. We thank you that by your grace you have put it within our hearts to worship you. And we ask now that by the presence of your spirit that we might do that very thing. We ask, O oh Father, that your spirit would be our teacher tonight, that he would instruct us in the word and as we delve into your eternal purposes we pray that he would open those up to us and we ask O oh father that these truths would become convictions in our hearts and minds and that as convictions they would be lived out so help us now father we confess to you the hour is late the day is long the distractions are many and we need your help the flesh is too strong we pray that you would grant to us by your spirit the ability to lock in on spiritual realities. We ask it in the blessed name of our glorious Savior. Amen. I was preaching in a prison just recently, and after the sermon, the prisoners always line up, they shake hands, and then they tell you sweet things about yourself. Some of them they mean, some of them they don't mean. And one of them said, we're so glad you're here. You tell it like it is to us, you speak like you're one of us, in fact, you are one of us, you belong here. <laughs> I'm going to speak to you tonight like I'm one of you, because I believe I am. And as I speak to you as one of you, I look at the subject of this sermon tonight. It's the assignment that I was given and gladly take. It's called Cultivating a Heart for the Nations. Cultivating a Heart for the Nations. Now, I gladly pick this subject up, and I speak to you face-to-face, -face, and I speak to you as one of you, there is very few of us in here who have a heart for the nations. 
Now that may sting. But when I look at myself in the mirror, I've got to realize as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ that there are many times when I have to be honest and say, Eric, you do not have a heart for the nations. And there's reasons for that. Will you be honest with me tonight? Will you search your heart as we begin to look at this subject? Will you look at yourself and say, well, do I have a heart for the nations? Will you look at yourself and say, am I even interested in cultivating a heart for the nations? And we have to ask that question because, frankly, cultivating a heart for the nations means there is a price to be paid. Yes, there is a reward to be reaped. There is joy and there is delight along the way. But there is a price to be paid if we are going to have a heart for the nations. And so as we begin tonight, I want to ask you that very basic question. Are you willing to consider cultivating a heart for the nations? We sang those two songs a moment ago. I was thinking, wow, if we heartily embrace that, my job's easy tonight. All I've got to do is show that that's God's purpose. And that's a really easy thing from the Scriptures. But will we cultivate a heart for the nations? One sermon won't do it. But a commitment and a conviction of God's eternal purposes will. Cultivating a heart for the nations is the subject. Let's take that apart for a moment so that we can know what we're talking about. Cultivating. We're going to exegete this. It's an agricultural term. It means literally to foster the growth of something, to nurture something. It has to do with preparing and improving the land, the soil, for the implanting of seed, that that seed may grow, that it may come to fruition and produce fruit. And so as we talk tonight of cultivating the heart, we're talking about fostering, nurturing the heart so that there will be a desire for the nations, for the evangelism of the nations. So we're going to seek to cultivate the heart. Secondly, the heart. What are we talking about here? Well, oftentimes when we talk about the heart in our day, we're talking about the feelings Because feelings-oriented living has become prominent. It dominates in our time. That is not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the heart. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it speaks of the whole of the inner man. It speaks of the mind, of the affections, and of the will. And so what we're doing in part here is we talk about cultivating the heart. We're cultivating the intellect to think God's thoughts after him with reference to the nations. And as we think God's thoughts after him, then the affections will be engaged. Not until. And when the affections are engaged, then the will will follow. So when we talk about the heart tonight, we're not talking about stirring up some kind of emotion that probably will die by the time we get to work tomorrow morning. We're talking about thinking through biblical theology, wrestling with the mind of God, and submitting our thinking to the thinking of God that we might think his thoughts after him. And when we do that, the heart will be affectionately engaged in the process. And when the heart is engaged, 
then the will follows. And so we're talking about cultivating that kind of a heart tonight. And then what do we mean by for the nations? Well, our pastor, your pastor, very aptly opened this up this morning from Psalm 67. What is this? Well, it's a desire for the nations of the earth to bow before King Jesus for salvation to be taken to the peoples of the earth. Two things there. First of all, that the glory of Christ would be proclaimed to the nations. You see, we have it backwards, and, and really, we're, we're, we're flipping Reformed thought, biblical thought, when our motivating factor, what drives us in this, is the need of the nations. Well, that's important. There's great need out there. But the primary driving factor, the motivating force is this, the glory of Jesus Christ. That his glory might spread through the nations. And as his glory spreads through the nations, then sinners will come to Jesus Christ. And thus you have that twofold aspect of a heart for the nations. It's that the glory of Christ would be proclaimed through the nations and that the people of the nations would know the Lord. Did you catch that in both the psalm this morning and Psalm 96? This is a hard cry of the psalmist. It comes up time and time and time again. It's not enough for the psalmist, regardless of what psalm. It's not enough for him to come before the Lord. He wants his neighbors to come. He says, come, go with me. He broadens it out from his neighbors to all of Israel. Israel, come, let's go worship the Lord. Let's go behold the glory of the Lord. But all of Israel coming is not enough. Time and time again, he says, the nations. And then he bronzes it out more and he says, all of the earth has to come before this God. Come with me. Come, know the Lord. Come, bow before this great God and give him the glory that he deserves. That's got to be our cry. That's got to be our heart. It's not enough that I go to the place of worship. It's not enough that I serve Jesus Christ. Everybody's got to come. We've got to get the whole earth coming. And there's a sense of urgency about this. And so when we speak of cultivating a heart for the nations, I put it like this. To cultivate a heart for the nations is to nurture growth in the inner man for the glory of Christ to be proclaimed in such a way that sinners come to know the Lord. That is what we're after. One of the things we pray for this church is that through you, sinners would come to the Savior. Not nations just over there somewhere, but nations here in this region of Georgia, that they would come to the Savior and worship this great God. Now, let's explore a little bit more. What does a heart for the nations mean? Well, I said it's not merely an emotional desire. We're not trying to stir up an emotional desire. It is a commitment for the gospel to go to the nations rooted in clear thought and understanding of God's purposes for the nations. There's a good example of this in David Brainerd. David Brainerd's diaries are a springboard from whence modern missions were launched. 
He tells at different times of going to the missionaries or going to the Indians. And he says very honestly, I don't want to go. I don't want to go tell them the gospel. As he's riding out there to tell them the gospel, he says, I don't want to go. I don't find love in my heart for these people right now, at least emotional love, the feeling. I want to turn back. But he keeps on going. Why? Because he understands that it is not an emotional drive, but it is a commitment to the truth and to the purposes of God that he would go to those Indians and preach the word. The point of this is this. It is hard, if not impossible, to maintain an emotional passion for an unknown person in outer Mongolia or wherever it might be. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to maintain an emotional desire, a feeling for a person in outer or inner Mongolia or in China or wherever else. You can't keep yourself, nor can I keep myself, stirred up to that end. But to keep a rational, biblical, biblically directed conviction and commitment to advancing Christ's kingdom to, the, to outer Mongolia is a doable thing. And that's what we're called to. It's kind of parallel like this. If you may get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, man, I don't feel like a Christian today. I just, I just don't feel like a Christian. Well, it doesn't matter, hill beans, what you feel like. Whether you feel like a Christian or not, your position in Jesus Christ is what counts. And somebody can stand up and look in the mirror and say, man, I just don't have a heart for missions. I don't have the feeling for world evangelism today. I'm not a kingdom thinker today. Well, follow the advice of J.C. Ryle and boot that feeling right out the window and be convinced in your mind and committed to the advancement of Christ's glorious kingdom. That's what it's calling us to do. That's what cultivating a heart for missions is like. I think all too often this, this feelings, emotion-oriented uh, thinking, reacting takes place and supplants biblical thinking. I'll tell you something that preachers shouldn't tell you. I, and I can't imagine that this happened. But there's a day or two in my years of ministry where I haven't wanted to preach the word. It's not supposed to happen, is it? Have you all had it happen? On a day to preach, the feeling wasn't there. You know what I did? I preached it anyway out of the conviction that it needs to be done. And the Holy Spirit blesses it. Well... If we let feelings drive our desires for the nations, it's going to go like this. Most of the time it's going to be here, and once in a while it'll be up here, and then it'll drop. But what we need in cultivating a heart for the nations is a firm commitment based upon a solid understanding of the purposes of God. Cultivating a heart for missions is cultivating this conviction and commitment that persists even when emotions are drained away. Sometimes 
ironically, at the end of a missions conference, the emotions have drained away. It happens. The emotions rise and they're stirred through the conference and when the conference is over, they're back down and we're drained. That may happen, but the conviction and the commitment must set in permanently. Now, there are obstacles to this, aren't there? And here we just search our own hearts. As I wrote this section of the sermon, I searched my own heart. Here are, here are the obstacles. Here's obstacles that I find, and I'm sure that somebody in here will find these as well. We are way too busy with our own lives to be concerned about the nations. We Americans live incredibly busy lives. Who has time to be concerned about kingdom thinking on a worldwide scale? You know, there's a very real obstacle. And sometimes it's an obstacle that drives the work of the gospel right out of the mind. There's a second obstacle in our way. We are too comfortable to be concerned with the nations. We at times are just flat too comfortable to be concerned with the nations. We Americans have a very comfortable and easy life. In fact, Gordon Taylor tells the story of talking to a young lady from China who reported to him the plans of many of the Chinese Christians to flood the Islamic lands with wave after wave of Christian young people going in there, not just young people, but Christians going in there to spread the gospel, knowing that many of them will be martyred for it. And here's what Gordon said. The person said, we know we will have to do it because American Christians won't do it. Because we're too comfortable in our Christianity. Pastor Nick and I were talking earlier today one of the very, very, very lamentable things about ARBCA right now is in the past 10 years, we have not sent a missionary to the field. Churches have been planted. Church planters are doing the work. Some national pastors have been put to work. But we have not sent a person in 10 years from the churches of ARBCA to plant churches. It's especially sad when you hear of David Vaughn saying, we have isolated 10 locations over here where we have at least a family, sometimes several families, who are saying, please, come plant a Reformed Baptist church here. We're longing for somebody. There's nobody. There's nobody to go. The third obstacle is this. Please understand when I say these things, I say them to myself. We are too selfish to be concerned with the nations. We're too selfish. Can I at least say at times we're too selfish to be concerned with the nations? A fourth objection, hindrance. It's too costly. Cost a bunch. As your pastor said this morning, it may cost some in this congregation to pack up, to get a plane ticket, and to head to the mission field that the nations might know the glory 
of Jesus Christ. So how do we get beyond these obstacles and how do we cultivate a heart for missions? I'm going to suggest two things tonight. They're very simple and yet I think they are right dead on target. How do we cultivate this heart for missions? Well, the first thing is this. We cultivate a heart for God. We get a heart for God. Listen to what Spurgeon says, uh, quoted by J.I. Packer in chapter 1 of Knowing God. Spurgeon is a mere 21 years old when he states this, but he's right on target, pointing us to this reality. The Christian's heart must beat for God. There must be a zeal and an enthusiasm for God. If there is not a zeal and enthusiasm for God, there will be no cultivating of the heart for missions. He says, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea. But I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. Spurgeon's exactly right. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of a self-content and go on our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this matter of master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depths, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with a thought that vain man would be wise. But he is like a wild ass's colt. And with a solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend to humble the mind more than the thoughts of God. But while, it, while, it's, I'm sorry, but while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified. And the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding it, this subject is eminently conciliatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your care? Then go. Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. 
I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. He says to that subject we turn this morning. To cultivate a heart for the nations, there must be a cultivating of the heart for God. Are you cultivating your heart for God? Are you seeking, putting energy into it, being enthusiastic in the pursuit of who God is? R.C. Sproul was once asked the question, if you could prescribe something for the church in the United States, what would it be? Without batting an eye, without a second of thought, his, his response was immediate. He said, I would prescribe for the church a healthy dose of who God is. He said, because the church in the United States has lost sight of who God is. Sometimes we, we don't have zeal for God because we've lost sight of who he is. Look with me at John 17. I want to look at two passages to reinforce this this evening. I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach than just expounding one text tonight. I want to scan a number of texts. John 17. John 17, verses 1 through 3. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, in order that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm going to stop at that point, because that hones our attention to this. What is the purpose of your conversion, Christian? What is the purpose of, of God sending the Spirit to summon you out of darkness into His marvelous light? It is not just that we would go about the duties of Christianity. It is that we would know God. You see what Jesus says here? I have given eternal life to as many as you have given me. That hones us into the eternal purpose of God. Jesus Christ came to give eternal life to those whom the Father had given to him. What is eternal life? He defines it in the third verse. To know God. You see, it sets our focus. Christianity is not a matter of just doing a duty, of just having a right set of beliefs, all of that hones in and focuses us to know God. And when we know God, then we will have a desire for the nations. When we know God, the heart will be cultivated. The gospel, that the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ would spread to the nations of the earth. Look at the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And for the sake of time, we, we won't read through the whole text, but you know in this passage of Scripture, Paul is saying basically, 
Everything that I have that would be of worldly value to me, my pedigree, my education, my stature as a probably a member of the Sanhedrin, he says, I count it all as dung. It's rubbish. Why, Paul? Look at verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, in order that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. There's the heart of the Apostle Paul. There's what drove him. And remember, Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles, the Apostle to the Gentiles. His desire to know Jesus Christ compelled him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Above all things, he says, I want to know Jesus Christ. I think it's kind of funny, ironically so, that sometimes we study Christology and we're ready to move on from that. I have a master's of theology. <laughs> what a poor, what a poor name for a degree. Mastered theology? Paul never mastered theology. At this point he's saying in his life, I want to know Christ. There's more to know. He's admitting I haven't mastered it yet. But my heart cry is this, that I might know Jesus Christ. And I am willing to give everything up for that knowledge. That's a heart that is cultivated for the nation's. And so Paul says in different places, like in Romans 1, my heart cry, my desire is to go beyond Rome. Yes, I want to come to Rome and I want to visit you, but I want to go beyond that. And I'm asking God, if there's any way possible, let me go to Rome and then beyond Rome to Spain and to preach the gospel in Spain. And let me go to places where the gospel has never been preached. Why? Why, Paul? Because he knows Jesus Christ. Because he knows Jesus Christ. Because that is the heart cry of Jesus Christ. He comes to the earth. He tells Nicodemus, salvation's not just of the Jews. It's going to the world. For God so loved the world. Oh, that would be mind-blowing to Nicodemus, who thought, no, we're, we're the elect of God. He's focused on us. And Jesus says, no, Nicodemus, as a teacher of Israel, he got it all messed up. It's been revealed all the way through the Old Testament. Salvation is going to the nations. The hard cry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we could look other places. Uh, just mark down Hebrews chapter 10. Because Hebrews chapter 10. Did, did you say 8.30 or 9.30? <laughs> Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 quotes Psalm 40 verses 8 and 9. And in Psalm 40, verses 8 and 9, which is quoted of Christ, it says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burnt offering and offering for sin you did not want. 
What you wanted, the next verse says, is those who would delight in your law. And the Lord Jesus Christ, referred to in that passage of Scripture, says, I delight in your law. Your ways are written upon my heart. That was the delight of Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 10, then it's expanded a little bit, and it says, I came not to give sacrifice and offering in the sense of the Old Testament system, but I came to do your will because I delight in your will. And there's our pattern, the Lord Jesus Christ, who delights in the Father. Because he delighted in the Father, he did the work that the Father had given him to do. You see, where a heart for the nations starts is with a heart for God, a heart for knowing God, a heart for knowing God's ways. What does it mean to have a heart for God? Well, it means first to have a heart for His being, the very being of God, to investigate and explore and delve into the very being of God. It means to have a heart for his truth, which is his word. John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. A person who has no heart for the scriptures has no heart for God. Because this is the avenue that God has given to know him. A heart for God means a heart for worship. Again, that's why you see that theme running through the Psalms and other places where the psalmist is constantly saying, Hey, everybody, come with me. We're going to ascend the hill. We're going to go to the place of worship. Don't you love Psalm 42? As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. The context of that psalm is that the psalmist has been driven away from the place of worship. And his soul pounds He wants to get back to the place of worship. And he says, I remember when I used to go with a festive throng, with a celebration to the house of God, to worship God. And oh, I long for it. Is that your desire on Sunday morning as you come to worship? Say, man, we're going going with a festive throng. I can't wait to get there to the place of the celebration of God. And he causes the psalmist to say, everybody, come on, let's go. Get the nations. A heart for God means a heart for the day of God, day of worship. It means a heart for the people of God. It means a heart for the work of God. And that takes us to our second point. The first point, then, in cultivating a heart for God or for The nations is to cultivate a heart for God. The second point, then, is this. A heart cultivated for the nations is a heart cultivated or full of the purpose of God. When we cultivate a heart for God, it's inclusive of the purposes of God. To say, well, I have a heart for God, but I don't much care about his purposes, is ludicrous. It's ridiculous. It's asinine. It's silly. It's absurd. To have a heart for God is to say, his plans, his purposes, his designs, they're my heart too. So really, 
I'm dividing two points of one point here. You can't have a heart for God separated from a heart for the purposes of God. And what I want to show here now is simply that as this church considers the work of missions, the work of taking the gospel to the nations, that you must do it. You must be involved in it. Because it's God's desire and plan. And what I want us to see in a very brief time is from Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Euangelion, to the book of Revelation. God has clearly and emphatically de declared, my purpose is to take the gospel to all of the nations, to the ethnic groups. Look with me, and we're going to scan quickly this evening, but look with me back at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. As you're turning there, I'll set the context. Eve has been deceived. Adam has willingly rebelled against God. And now God is speaking the curse upon a man and woman and on the serpent. We're just going to cut into verse 15. And I will put enmity, I will put hatred between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. What we have here, we know from the rest of the revelation of Scripture, especially Galatians chapter 3, is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who would come and would crush the serpent's head. And the work and the plan of God is, is so glorious that in that very event where Satan has, has bruised Christ, where Satan has thought, I've got him now, I've defeated the plan of God, it's that very act through which Christ stamps upon the head of the serpent and defeats him. This promise, known as the Proto-Euangelion, the first proclamation of the gospel, is not just limited to the people of Israel, as we'll demonstrate in a moment. It's to the nations of the earth through this seed. And so the gospel starts here. Y'all, it's, it's, it reveals to us the magnificent grace of God because you set yourself in the context, the historical reality of what's going on here. Eve has been deceived. She's taken of the fruit. She's given to Adam. Adam in high-handed rebellion, not being deceived, but in high-handed rebellion says, I will take it and I will eat it. And they have rebelled against God. God comes and pronounces the curse upon them. They deserve eternal judgment. And in the midst of the curse, God proclaims the gospel. But I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to save. I'm going to send a seed who will crush the head of that serpent. Did they understand all that? I don't know what all they understood. But I know we understand it because we have the rest of Revelation. This is a promise of the coming of the gospel. And in it we have a declaration of the purpose of God to go to the nations. Turn with me to the second text, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3.
Very interesting. This morning your pastor referred to this text, and we did not call each other and work through our sermons together, but you naturally go to this text. When you think of the gospel going to the nations, look at the promises to Abraham here. Uh, Genesis 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all families, all the ethnicity, pantata ethna, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Jews, not just little Israel, but all the nations of the earth. Why didn't Nicodemus understand that? It's right there, just as clear as can be. The promise to Abraham is a promise, a covenantal promise, that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through the seed of Abraham that Galatians chapter 3 tells us is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's God's desire that the gospel go to the nations. And y'all, somebody's got to take it. God ordains means. We've got to take it. This promise through Abraham appears again. We won't look there, but appears in chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. In chapter 15, verse 4 and following. Chapter 17, 1 through 8. Chapter 18, verse 17. And in chapter 22, 15 through 18. I wanted to read all through all those just to get this point across. It's pretty important to God. It's a priority to God that the nations of the earth be blessed through this seed. Philip Hughes has written a wonderful little book. May I tell you, just briefly, of God's providence? I have toted this book around for 20 years. I had this book in seminary. So Mary Claire, I guess it was almost 30 years. And I've never read it. After the assignment that I was given two weeks ago, I woke up early, 3 o'clock one morning, couldn't sleep. Got up, thumbed through some books next to my recliner. thought, well, I, I think I'll read that. I started reading it. You know what it does? It outlined my sermon. It was exactly what I wanted to preach. The proto-Ewangelion, the, the covenant, covenant to Abraham, and so on and so forth. You talk about the providence of God. Toted that book around for almost 30 years. And then the week before I'm going to preach this sermon... God says, basically, read the book. He didn't appear in my study and say, Eric, read the book. But uh, he put it into my hands. Listen to what, uh, what he says here. The covenant that God made with Abraham was a milestone of the most fundamental importance in the history of prophecy. A right understanding of the significance of the Abrahamic covenant and its implications is conducive to a right understanding not only of the entire prophetic perspective of Holy Scripture, but to the heart of the Christian gospel itself, in which the covenant comes to full fruition. He uses a weak word here. He says the implications are conducive to a right understanding. They're absolutely necessary for a right understanding of the gospel. You see, as we consider... As we consider a heart for the nations, we must plug into the, the purpose of God. Let me put it this way. What is the heart of God? 
It's a heart for the nations. It's a heart that says, all of the nations will come to me. It's a heart that says in Psalm 2, quoted again in the New Testament, when the Father is talking to the Son, a magnificent psalm, we are privy in that psalm to a discussion between the Father and the Son, and the Father says to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. Do you think Jesus Christ has asked the Father? You better believe he has. He has said, Father, I'm asking you, give me the nations as an inheritance. And the Father is glad, glad to oblige. Well, let's rush. Have you noticed when preachers say several things, it has no meaning whatsoever? Let's rush. I don't know of any preacher that knows how to rush. Or I'm just going to take a few more minutes. Or I'll cut this one short. (laughs) means absolutely nothing. So I'm going to do all three of the above. Look with me. We will eliminate some of this, but look with me at Daniel chapter 7. Magnificent passage of Scripture. In this we have a picture of the Ancient of Days who is on the throne. We're going to begin in verse 9. We're going to... Skip, well, we won't skip any. Look at verse 9. Now, these are not just words on a text. This is reality. If you have a low view of God, pay close attention to this passage of Scripture and correct that low view of God. Look at verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Stop for a moment and visualize that. His throne is a fiery flame, a fiery stream issued out and came forth from before him. Thousands and thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Got the picture? It's an awe-inspiring picture. If we had a vision of that or dreamed of that tonight as we sleep, we would be terrified. It's a vision of who God is. The fiery flame from God's throne constantly comes thunderings and lightnings. The book of Revelation picks up on that. Thousands of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. Sounds a lot like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Chapter 5 are gathered before him 10,000 times 10,000. Is that 100 million? But it's not literal. It's figurative. There's a gigantic crowd out there ministering before him. And I watched... uh, Let's skip that and go to verse 13. I mean no disrespect to the scriptures. I'm, I'm trying to be time conscious. Look at verse 13. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man... Coming with clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Here comes the Lord Jesus Christ to the Ancient of Days. Look what happens next. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. You see what happens here? 
This, this fantastic picture of the throne of God and the one like unto the Son of Man comes to the throne and the Ancient of Days gives him a kingdom comprised of the nations of the earth. Tribes and kindreds and peoples and nations. What's that telling us? It's telling us that the plan and purpose and intent of God, and we're delving in here to the very eternal purposes of God, is to give to His Son a kingdom of the nations. What a magnificent thing. That part of the accomplishment of that is that we mere mortals have a part in it. That He uses us to go proclaim the gospel so that nations will turn and that they will be presented to Jesus Christ as a gift. we got to skip through a bunch of this. Let's go to Revelation chapter 5. We'll conclude at this point. Pastor Nick, have you ever over-prepared? <laughs> Revelation chapter 5. You recognize that in Revelation chapter 4 hones our attention in upon God the Father. Look how it's written. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here! And I will show you things which must take place after this. Notice the progression now. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat on the throne was like... Now stop a moment. This is written very specifically. He could have very easily said, I turned and there was somebody sitting on the throne up there. He doesn't say that. He says, I turned and there was a throne. Draw your attention to the throne. And there was one on the throne. Somebody's sitting on that throne. And then he describes that one. And the one on that throne was such and such. See how he progresses through that? It's written very deliberately. So we have another throne room scene in heaven. Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 5. I wish we could read these two passages. They're great. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. Don't read it yet. I've I got to set the text here. The, when you finish chapter 4 and begin chapter 5, the one on the throne has a scroll. And there's a lament because nobody in heaven or on the earth or under the earth can take the scroll and open it. And, and this goes on for an extended period of time because John says, I wept much. I can imagine him dropping to his knees and bawling his eyeballs out because there's nobody to come to the one who's on the throne and take the scroll. And he's weeping and weeping over this. And then one of the elders comes and puts his hand on him and says, John, don't cry. For behold, notice this, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed. John looks up and he looks over to the throne and he says, there was one like unto the lamb. The elder says, a lion. John says, I looked. And there was one like a lamb who had been slain. A lion lamb. 
Okay, now we're ready for verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Saints never think that your prayers don't count. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see the parallel? Daniel 7 is saying, this is what's going to happen. Revelation 5 says, it has happened. Do you know what that speaks to us? When we consider the nations, it speaks success. It says the gospel is going to be successful. The gospel is going to subdue the nations. The gospel is going to call thousands upon thousands, Revelation chapter 7, a vast multitude that no man can number. Why would we not engage in such a successful enterprise? We know the end of it right there. There's the kingdom that's been given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me wrap up with just a few points of application. Oh, there's so much more. First point of application is this. God wants it, it's going to be. God wants the gospel to go to the nations. He wants the nations to come to Christ. And when we say that, we're not talking every single person. He's talking that from all of the nations, they will come to God. It is going to happen. We know that with a certainty. Secondly, then, by way of implication, well, first, with that, be encouraged by it. We, we are not fighting a losing fight. We are fighting a victorious fight. Any resources, whether it be prayer whether it be money, whether it be time, it's going to be successful. The kingdom is going to expand. Secondly, then, it shows us a part of the work of the church. This is what we are to be engaged in. We are to be spreading the kingdom. We are to be kingdom thinkers, taking the kingdom to the remotest parts of the earth. And success is guaranteed. Let me conclude then by saying, to cultivate a heart for the nations doesn't mean that we watch news broadcasts and we see those who are suffering and it stirs an emotional feeling. That should be there. Compassion for them. It means, first of all, we cultivate a heart for God, a heart that says with great zeal and longing, I must know God. And secondly, it's a heart that says what is important to God from this point on is important to me. If it is important to God, if it is the eternal purpose of God to call the nations to Jesus Christ, then I'm going to have a part in it. I don't know what the part will be, but I'm going to have a part in that. And when that happens, you know what will happen to us? We'll have a different view of worship. 
will have a different view of the church. We will be willing to pull the wallet out and the checkbook out and do what we can when there is a cry in the kingdom for help. We'll be willing to help. We will spend time in prayer. We will establish prayer meetings. And we will pack our bags and we will go. And our churches will be sending churches. Our churches will long for and work for the day when we can send those out who will advance the kingdom in those places. Oh, be that kind of a church. Cultivate a heart for God and cultivate a heart for His purposes. Let's bow and let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank You for allowing us to have hearts that beat for You. And Father, we pray that You would instill within us by Your Holy Spirit a burning desire to know You, that we would be like the Apostle Paul, that we would be willing to count everything as rubbish, that we might know Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that You would transform our thinking. We do not by nature like the things that You like, and Your priorities are not by nature our priorities. And so we ask You, that you would change the way that we think and that the nations, the ethnic groups would become important to us because they're important to you. Oh, Father, we ask that you would use this church to advance your glorious kingdom. And we ask it in the very powerful name of Christ. Amen.